Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Professor Tonya Evans. So we're going to talk about digital money. Why do we need it? A lot of people talk about digital money all the time and we think that it's a great thing, the best thing since sliced bread, but we still don't actually have it or do we have it, right? And obviously that's linked to crypto industry and we have heard a bad news flow about crypto exchanges and things like this. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Let's find out more. So Tonya, how are you today? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about my favorite subject. I suspect it might be yours as well. Yes, thank you so much. But before we dive into this, I'd like to introduce you, right? So what is your backstory? How did you get to do what you do today? It's interesting because I'm an intellectual property lawyer by training. I've been in law for 25 years. I just celebrated my 25th reunion from Howard University School of Law. I was the editor-in-chief there and clerked in the Third Circuit, did all of the traditional things, started in big law. And I actually don't have a background in technology or a substantive background in in finance. I was really focused on the intellectual property aspects of new technologies, though. And so that was my entry point when in 2017, I had a a friend who was getting a second degree at, at Syracuse. And she was talking about this working group that she was working in. She was uh, operating in new media and blockchain technology. I had tangentially heard about Bitcoin, didn't fully appreciate what blockchain was at the time, said something about magic internet money. It was also around the time when people were saying blockchain, not Bitcoin. I think there was the kind of the big ICO or the initial coin offering boom and bust around that time after the proliferation of tokens in the Ethereum ecosystem. I didn't know what any of that meant at the time, but I'm giving the context of what was going on then. Uh, But I was very fascinated as an intellectual property lawyer about the L1 layer of collaborative open source software that was enabling a couple of things on the Bitcoin side, obviously peer-to-peer cash, although it appears to be functioning better as a, a store of value in the moment, that solving for the Byzantine problem at that time, what Satoshi did was groundbreaking, even though the technology, none of the technologies that make up this digital ecosystem they all existed before, but the novel connection of the two uh, the, of the three or four was quite interesting. But anyway, people started to ask, how might one build on top of open sourced software protocols? What would that mean in the Ethereum ecosystem? For example, if you have this global kind of operating system supporting decentralized applications and DAOs and uh, again, thousands of tokens, what does that mean for monetization. And that was that's in my lane. And, and many lawyers weren't 
uh, studying this, unpacking it, appreciating what the intellectual property issues were. So I took a deep dive in my existing area of expertise, fell down the proverbial rabbit hole, started training other intellectual property lawyers, first at the World Intellectual Property Organization, all over, I actually went to Thailand, and really talking about the intellectual property issues. And then finally, learning about intellectual property issues, it forced me to really sit down and figure out what is this magic internet money and what does it mean not only to disrupt financial technology, but every industry or sector. All right, great. So you're an IP lawyer that fell in love with blockchain and crypto, basically, right? <laughs> Would that be a tagline? That would be a good start. I ended up serving as the chair of the Maker Foundation in the Maker ecosystem. I'm now on the board of directors of Digital Currency Group, DCGs. It goes through its evolution post-2022. And I found myself more broadly speaking, but the entry point, and I always tell this for everyone, your existing entry point should be your existing interests and the intersection of cryptographically secured assets and blockchains. All right. And I like to talk about books in this podcast. And it's great that we're talking now to yet another author on this podcast. So you've recently written a book called Digital Money Demystified. So let me start with a little bit of a challenge here. Isn't the most of the money digital already, right? Why are we talking about creating digital money? Because what we have in our pockets, it's just a fraction of monetary supply if you studied economics or finance, right? So most of the money is created by commercial banks when they give loans, etc., and the money multiplies. So the paper money and the coins are, uh, it's obviously something visible, but it's not the it's not really the biggest part of the monetary supply. What is it all about? Yeah, so you have to meet uh, new entrants in the space where they are. They're not going to have the level of sophistication or the background or the tolerance to talk about hashes and Byzantine fault tolerance and zero knowledge proofs and all of that. You, people glaze over when you start talking in that manner. We're no longer just dealing with cypherpunks. We're no longer just dealing with folks who speak in the world of finance or technology. But when we think about mass adoption, you have to meet people where they are. And that's the that lends itself to the type of title, digital money demystified. To your point, everything is basically ones and zeros anyway, right? People very rarely at this point carry any significant amount of physical cash, but they also have not gone to get advanced degrees in economics or understand the fractional system, understanding central banks and commercial bank layer. They don't understand why the classic example of savings and loans, we put all of our money in a bank, they lent, excuse me, lend it back to us and keep the yield, right? The, the difference between what they're willing to lend it out and what we're willing to sit there for the paltry sum of less than a penny of a fraction of a penny on the dollar when you're holding things in the bank. Like they don't understand savings. They don't understand that the the dollar is only backed by agreement, the full faith and credit. It's all made up. <laughs> it's all made up. The full faith and credit of a government that backs it and really raising money for the purpose of wars. And we go into that. But having this other alternative to moving uh, value digitally, that is something where the average person can understand that. They can understand that they could use 
Venmo, Cash App, PayPal. Sometimes I send a wire. Sometimes I do have cash. And, and this is just this being cryptographically secured currencies, one additional way to move value. The OG obviously is Bitcoin. And then we have everything else. And I come from the Ethereum ecosystem. I love Ether as well. I don't have any problem with that, but Bitcoin is special. It's different. It's hard money. It has a cap that we can verify. And once people start to understand what fiat is, and then they can say, okay, so what is this alternative and why does it matter? And if people continue to ask that question, they need to demystify the space. They need to understand that this isn't just for criminals or volatility isn't always bad or this isn't a fad or all a scam. And so that's what the book was intended to do is to remove all of the mindset barriers that people have to quote unquote, I'm using air quotes now, crypto to talk about 40,000 plus different types of coins and tokens. Let's move separate back from fiction, and then they can make more educated decision about Bitcoin and the other coins and tokens. All right. So let's talk fact versus fiction. What are the most common myths around cryptocurrencies? Yeah, probably you hear, and I certainly hear almost just multiple times a day that crypto is only for criminals. I take great issue with that as do, do platforms and companies like Chainalysis working very closely with the Department of Justice here in the United States to actually track down any type of crypto transaction that may have been used to perpetrate some type of crime or other fraud. Shout out to Sam Bankman-Fried, for example. As an aside, that wasn't a crypto problem. That was a fraud problem. You can you And the number one currency used in criminal activity around the world is clearly the United States dollar. It is currently the global reserve, although we can come back in 10 years and talk about whether or not that's going to be true. But the number one is this idea, and I don't think that the headlines, the sensational, albeit oftentimes lazy headlines, the clickbait, that would have people believe that is the case. But when you have a public system that tracks in time-stamped ways, transactions and balances and agreement of the state at any given time of an asset, that is very different than the system that we have now from the government's point of view that is quite shrouded in secrecy, requiring all sorts of rules from a, an SEC or CFTC point of view to regulate. This is the type of currency or asset more broadly, not just a currency, where there's a transparency, there's a permissionless access, as we say. So there's no barrier to participation other than our mindset and education. But one thing we have to get clear is crypto is horrible for criminals if, if we're using it for the intended purpose. Think of other things that are related. Crypto is one just one big scam. So I feel like it's lazy for people to say that. And then you just press them a little bit more of what is crypto to you and why is it <laughs> one big scam when you have 40,000 different types of coins and tokens in the currency realm that doesn't even account for non-fungible tokens and other uses besides financial uses. And so I address that in the book. Another one that comes up is that crypto is one, it's bad for the environment, excuse me. And I'm very conscious of and protective of environmental issues, but I have found one, oftentimes people compare a global economic system, in the case of cryptocurrencies, with a country. 
if you want to compare apples to apples, let's talk about the global financial system. Let's talk about global banking and compare and contrast. And I think that the crypto ecosystem is more well-suited for more eco-friendly ways to to exhaust resources or not to exhaust them. So those are some of the big ones. The lack of security, I think, is a myth that it's wholly unregulated because I'm a lawyer. I spend most of my time with policy and regulation. So those are some, I have 10 in the book, but those are some of the big ones. All right, understood. Yes, there were issues with crypto exchanges already for a while, right? So it's not about what's happening on the blockchain, but what's happening on the interface between the crypto and the, let's say, traditional finance. You touched on the regulatory issues. So what are some of the hot legal and regulatory issues? We've seen issues where, you know, uh, SEC was suing Ripple, etc. right? It wasn't clear what's a security, what's a commodity, in some countries, this hasn't been such an issue. It was pretty clearly set out quite quickly. So what's going on right now, apart from maybe debate about regulating crypto exchanges? Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. Earlier this year, in, in March of 2023, I testified before the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Digital Assets, Financial Technologies and Inclusion. And the, I don't have the title in front of me of the hearing, but it was dealing with what uh, is commonly referred to as choke point 2.0, where taking a closer look at agencies that, in my opinion, I also, in addition to teaching blockchain, crypto, and law-related topics, I also teach administrative law. So I have a great handle on Article two powers with the executive and the executive agencies getting their power from Congress. And when Congress sets out the legal framework for an agency like the Securities and Exchange Commission or like the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, Congress is the one that sets the frameworks. And then the SEC or the CFTC or other executive agencies step in to actually run or give effect to the laws on a day-to-day basis. And the issue really is whether or not those agencies, particularly the SEC under Gary Gensler, is overstepping the bounds of the existing framework. And also if a new or amended framework is necessary in order to adequately deal with programmable assets. The, The laws as we know them to regulate securities with the SEC or commodities with the CFTC, weren't really created to regulate uh, an asset that can change the nature of its character, which makes me think of Ethereum when it first was released, or that first issue was was like the original ICO or one of them. And at that time, it probably was an unregulated security, but there was sufficient decentralization over the time that by about 2018, one could reasonably argue, and I think the former CFT, excuse me, SEC commissioner at the time said, ETH, even if it started as a security, was now a commodity. Gary Gensler might disagree. And to your point, there are a lot of other countries that have resolved this issue. It's a non-issue that we seem to be fighting about in the United States. I think Commissioner Hester Peirce, she takes great issue usually with Gary Gensler. And that's all going to have to shake itself out. But that still remains 
a large issue. The one caveat is that now the third branch of government here in the States, the judiciary has stepped in to say, hey, SEC, you're overstepping your bounds. We see that in a very real way with XRP. We see on the horizon an exchange-traded fund likely to be approved probably in January of 2024. Don't hold me to that. It's not legal or financial advice, but those are some of the biggest things. Oh, the final point is regulating of stable coins and perhaps Circle going public in 2024. That would be the second company after the second company after Coinbase to go public in, in, in our space. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff, legislation coming down the pike. But this fight among regulators and legislators is one certainly to watch in this presidential cycle. Let's touch base on one of the basic things we talked about before. Do you see future of crypto as means of payment or other use cases are potentially more likely or more uh, attractive? I know that uh, Bitcoin started as a cryptocurrency, really, for all kinds of reasons, especially financial crisis, right? But when you really look at it, it has many issues when it comes to really using it for buying your stuff on Amazon and things like this, right? So first of all, obviously, the value is moving all the time, but more, more uh, of it is the capacity, right? And the energy you need for this. So even compared to our old friends, uh, VisaNet, this is so much slower, right? This is thousands of times slower. So can we really talk about cryptocurrency as a currency or is it something else? And maybe we should look at Ethereum and post-merge. What they have been doing is when they change the proof of work to proof of stake and therefore it's much less energy demanding. And of course, Ethereum can be used for building apps and definance and all kinds of things like this. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question to continue to work through. And I think this scaling issue is always going to be a part of the discussion because to your point, a fraction of the number of transactions in each 10 minute block for Bitcoin, that it just pales in comparison, obviously, to the visas and the MasterCards of the world. Currently, it's a feature, not a bug, but it is a bug if you're thinking about mass adoption, right? Or trying to process the level of transactions required to make global transactions around the the world move at lightning speed. And I use the term lightning intentionally, obviously, because of other solutions, perhaps they're going to be bridges, layer two solutions that allow for the scaling that is not possible right now. There is this trade-off between security and this the structure of blockchain technology for crypto assets and where we are now. Where we will be in five and 10 years will be very different. Obviously, even though Bitcoin's, let's see, been around since January of 2009, the Bitcoin white paper just celebrated a 15th anniversary on October 31st, excuse me, for the Bitcoin white paper, which leads me to the question that you started with, does Bitcoin in particular let alone the rest of the coins and tokens, serve well as the peer-to-peer cash that was explained in Satoshi's nine-page white paper, right? Um, and the argument now that it doesn't appear to be functioning well in that capacity, but functioning extremely well as a store of value. You mentioned volatility, which if you have extreme periods of volatility, that's not going to work well for a currency, but that's the kind of the beauty of programmable assets that 
make cryptocurrency a bit of a misnomer. The idea that we talk about it as a currency, but in the United States and around in other places where there's taxation, crypto is taxed as a capital asset. When that way it's treated more like a stock than it is currency, but also functions on a day-to-day basis, which is why I'm really excited about stablecoins. I think that's a great way to onboard folks. I'm a big fan of, of Circle and USDC, for example. Tether is clearly very important for the crypto ecosystem. And it's a way to experience or, or sit on the sidelines and not really be impacted by the volatility of other assets with a stable coin. And so I think it's a both and issue. You're going to have things that function well as store value, maybe some assets that function well as currencies. And then you have myriad other uses that we don't even fully appreciate yet, that identity, uh, other industries, healthcare, gaming, and the like. So there's so many different functions. It makes it difficult to talk about one in particular. All right. So uh, let's follow up on the uh, nice uh, term you mentioned, uh, crypto curious, right? So if you're crypto curious or you're curious about crypto, then uh, how can you onboard and uh, safely, securely, how can you get into this world? And maybe let's double down on the motivation, like why should you do it? Mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to learn the language of the future of money. It's just where we are. Every Most every nation around the world is exploring its own version of a central bank digital currency. It's happened in China. We're certainly exploring it in the United States, whether or not legislators would agree <laughs> or actually say it publicly. You cannot be a well-formed government without seeing what's on the horizon, particularly given how much the control of economic policy is to governments and nation states. And with the change in language, with an additional option for digital money that now is outside of the purview of a particular government, when we think about years from now, when we're talking about some type of global reserve currency that may not be beholden to a particular country, that requires us to learn. Every major bank is involved. Every major corporation has some division that is trying to figure this out, not just a matter of the organization and the security of data, but also what it means to move value in an increasingly digitized world. And also just a matter of financial privacy, agency, autonomy. This is more of This is more important now than at any other time, given all of the instability in various places and various nations once perceived to be quite powerful. There's a shift and you never want to be the last person there. Sometimes you don't want to be the first, right? I get that. But you darn sure don't want to be the last in in terms of trying to catch up. We have, it's easier now than at any other time to acquire Bitcoin, to learn, to learn about all of the other coins and tokens and how they might impact our lives, how uh, digital wallets might help us manage identity issues as well. So this is critically important for folks to know now so they're not left behind. And final point, it's one of the easiest times to move the needle on access to wealth and opportunities, certainly as an investor, but also just building in the space, pivoting your profession your job. I certainly have done that as an academic and as a lawyer. 
and it's just critically important to stay up. Things will change more in the next two years than they did in the last decade. And things are moving faster, not slower. So there are a lot of really important reasons to get clear, avoid the carnival barkers, <laughs> avoid the naysayers, and stay in the middle. Say, let's, let's shoot with just the facts so that people can make informed choices and not take, get taken advantage of with the next bull run. All right. Sounds great. Now, obviously, the world of Web3 or crypto is also connected to the issues such as financial inclusion, diversity, as you mentioned. So if you look at the world of fintech, whichever country you pick, you typically see maybe 4% founders. Or if you look at VC investors, maybe even less. Mm -hmm. So how can we empower women and diverse entrepreneurs to, to participate in the world of Web3, blockchain and crypto? Yeah, this is really important because when I think about, I, I had Andreas Antonopoulos on my podcast, the weekly show Tech Intersect, and I remember him talking about, obviously he's a, a Bitcoiner, definitely a maxi, and saying that coin is for the 99%. It's for everybody else. It's democratizing with a little D that's not beholden to a particular political party, but the idea of rules without rulers and money without borders and opportunity that doesn't require you to have some type of government or private entity score that determines the haves and the have nots. There's no redlining. There's no, who are you, man, woman, black, white, whatever. It's literally irrelevant. Do you have this asset or not? Is this your wallet or not? And there are other ways to establish what assets you have and how to move those that are not dependent upon a particular gatekeeper. Gatekeepers have set up a system where folks who do not have continue to fight amongst each other while the 1% of the 1%, and I love wealth and all of those things. This is not to tear down those who have assets, but there's a lack of balance that is coupled with a lack of opportunity access and opportunity, excuse me, that just doesn't exist in the space. And the biggest impediment for people, for women, for people of color, for various communities that have been systemically marginalized around the world will be mindset and education. And that is a powerful opportunity to participate regardless of who you are. You may never buy or invest or in the short term use to uh, trade, but there are many opportunities from a business point of view to make yourself the smartest person in the room. A little learning goes a long way, but it's critically important. And you don't have to understand everything, but you do have to start where you are and do something. The world is changing at an exponential rate and there's great opportunity the most I've ever seen in my lifetime. And that's why I'm so bullish on the technology and so hyper-focused on making sure people make the best decisions best uh, based upon the best advice and the best information. A well-informed citizenry is the best way to exercise power and self-sovereignty and control. Exactly. However, let's follow up on what you just said before. So it doesn't seem like we're trying to avoid this topic because it's a new asset class. It's a new field, right? When you look at derivatives back in the day, there have been also, or there were also issues, right? I remember ING bearings or bearings, right? And now we are using derivatives every day and it's not an issue. So we figure out how to deal with it. Why are we having still issues with crypto exchanges? There have been hacks before several times and now we have a major one 
still going on that everybody's talking about, right? FTX and SBF. Yeah, because when I think of FTX, and I think it's a great example, one, to show how quickly things can go wrong, and two, how quickly the law stepped in to make things right. It was like November 7th that Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas, and today he's a convicted felon, <laughs> right? It took longer to get Bernie Madoff down off of his scam, or when I think of Enron, or when I think of all the other Lehman Brothers, so many other places where it's the same fraudulent mindset, just a different asset. You mentioned this earlier as well. And when all of the banking failures and the real estate crises go on, we don't burn down all the houses and we don't throw away all of our dollars. We get at the heart of the activity of people working under the guise. And that's not to say they're not big ticket hacks going on too. When you're dealing with software, when you have this honeypot with centralized exchanges, when you have lenders that are encouraging people, and this is like the classic FTX thing, and we have the the lenders from 2022 lending, but not having sufficient assets to back. Things are rather incestuous. And when things go badly, they really do when it's early and you just have a few players. But back to your point about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, encouraging people under the guise of a decentralized distributed asset to then centralize it on an untested platform that without your knowledge and consent, then takes those assets and sends it to its sister company, Alameda, for high-risk engagement, for threat uh, having nothing to do with crypto. It's usually done under the guise. And we're going to need to clean up the space. And I think that we're going a long way in doing so. And to the earlier point of this being a terrible place, if you are trying to use crypto assets for nefarious purposes, for a range of things. But the statistics do not belie this idea that, or do not support this idea that it's all rampant criminal activity. Less than 2%, according to chain analysis, of usage of crypto assets is used for criminal purposes. And so again, separating fact from fiction gets us closer to identifying who the bad actors are and rooting them out. And if the SEC, now my opinion, not yours, would spend more time going after bad actors and less taking down the stalwarts and the good actors in the space, maybe they would have been able to uh, focus on Sam Bankman-Fried instead of Coinbase, my, my personal opinion. Right. So interesting stat, you mentioned the 2%, because when you're watching the Hollywood movies, it's 80%, no? <laughs> Absolutely. We want to get paid. Yeah, pay me in crypto and I'll do this and that, right? right? Maybe somebody should talk to uh, screenwriters. Mm-hmm. But in any case... That, yeah. uh, just a quick point. It also goes to something that I focus on in every chapter. Let's identify what you and I would call FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and really understand where that comes from. Is it coming from incumbents? right? And legacy systems that have a vested interest in this asset class not becoming the customer service issue that it is? And if so, that is the problem that we need to root out as well. All right. All right. Great. So before I let you go, I just have two easy questions as I typically do have on this podcast. First of all, what's your favorite business book? And that's in addition to yours uh, that you just <laughs> written, right? The Digital Money Demystified. We'll put yeah. the link in the show notes for sure. But any other book that you could recommend or any other resource which you use to keep up to date when it comes to these topics? It's so interesting that now that I'm in crypto, I spend far more time learning all the things I didn't know 
And that's me going to great schools and having a doctor father and a, a lawyer mother and being in cryptos. I know nothing <laughs> about money. So for the last six years, six, seven years, really diving into that. Two, there are two things that immediately come to mind because they're on my shelf right now. We Should All Be Millionaires is written by Rachel Rogers. See, an African-American woman who founded a company called Hello7 to empower women to shift your mindset from focused on uh, focusing on six figures to seven figures and beyond and really building your business and building your brand by changing your mindset. So I love We Should All Be Millionaires. And I agree. I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And a second one, it's about damn time from Arlen Hamilton. She owns Backstage Capital. She started out basically experiencing homelessness with her family all the way up to this multi-million dollar VC fund that funds the endeavors of those who have been systemically marginalized. So I love those pathways. I'd love to be in the same position to help others as well. So I adore both of those books. I've read We Should All Be Millionaire like three times. I'm still on my first time with It's About Damn Time. All right, brilliant. So check those out. And then one last thing is what's the best way for people to reach out and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? Yeah, I'm most interested in traditional investors who are intellectually curious and lifelong learners who don't want to get left behind and want to separate fact from fiction. So definitely investors, but also professionals, financial and legal professionals in the space who need to make sense of what's going on so that they can actually represent business owners and investors in the space so that we protect consumers and investors but also support innovation in a very important and, and fast-growing space. So you can all reach out at digitalmoneydemystified.com, and that'll lead you to everything, to my professional services, to my free resources, through my monthly membership opportunity, and certainly for the book. Fabulous. So thank you so much, and good luck to you, Tonya. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.